Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello everyone, it's Sarah here. Today we're going to be exploring a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is children and grief. Here with me are my usual posse of grievers, Shadia, Aaron, and Christine. And I am so excited to introduce our very special guest, Katie Eisel. She's a certified child life specialist and is in the process of obtaining her master's degree in counseling and therapy. She's worked in many community settings where she supported youth and teens in times of high stress. Her mission has been to support and empower people to be successful and heal. We are so grateful to have her on the show today. Welcome, Katie. Thank you again for being here with us. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yay. So excited that you are here today in your cute pink glasses, too. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. If only our listeners could see. All right. (laughs) Well, before we dive in to this topic of children and grief, which I will warn is a heavy one, I want to remind our listeners that this show contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. So our starting point today is going to be around some statistics and research related to children and grief. The statistics I want to share have come out of what I consider to be a landmark study on childhood bereavement. I am referring to the Childhood Bereavement Estimated Model, shortened to CBEM. This was created by Judy's House in partnership with the New York Life Foundation. Our guest here, Katie, uh, is familiar with this model, and I'm curious if you would mind telling us a little of what you know about it and maybe some of your thoughts on it. I'd also be curious in hearing how this model has impacted your work. Yes, absolutely. So Judy's House is an amazing family grief center in Denver, Colorado, and they've been around for many years. So they have been instrumental, as you mentioned, in kind of paving the way in creating some statistical research around children and grief. They have kind of an arm of their organization called the JAG Institute, which stands for Judith Ann Greasy. So Judy, who is the woman who started and um, Judy's house is named after. So that's what JAG stands for. And that JAG Institute integrates the evaluation and research to improve accessibility and quality of care for children and families who are grieving. So it's just, it's really important to have research and studies behind why we are helping support our youngest grievers and the value and impact that that has as we get older, um, what grief has on us and why it's important for us to get support at all ages when we have someone significant to us die. So they have created this JAG Institute, who's done some amazing research nationally, which is incredibly impressive. 
So not only have they done this research on children in grief and youth, and not just till they're 18, but even into young adulthood across the United States, they've broken it down into each individual state as well. Nationally, they've got some statistics, which I know you're going to share with us, but then we also have statistics and numbers and data for each individual state. And that data is updated annually, which is really, really helpful for us. And what it hasn't incorporated as of yet, our 20, the 2021 data has not reflected the impacts of COVID-19. And we know that that is going to be really significant. So they're working on that as we speak. But outside of, of that, it's been incredibly helpful for us to know what the numbers are around how many children are grieving the impact of a parent and sibling death. Those are, that's the, the losses that they're looking at right now is primarily parent and sibling. So we know if we were to integrate, you know, grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, maybe best friend, you know, other significant people, because we know that there are many other significant people in children's lives. Those numbers would go, would be even more significant, I should say. I think it's incredible how, so all this research is gathered on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. And then the power in that, it sounds like, is that it turns what I imagine to be kind of abstract well, as a therapist myself, I often feel like the work I do is very abstract. I don't always see tangible results. I don't know necessarily if people are quote unquote healing. And so to be able to create a way to measure that, especially in such a vulnerable population that I think is so misunderstood still and overlooked, you know, children and youth is incredible because it, it sounds like it is what really allows funding to come in as well, sources of funding to fuel what kind of work do they do or what kind of work do you do? I know those are two different questions. <laughs> two very different questions. Well, I think those numbers show how many children are mourning the death of a significant person. And then what we know within mental health is the impact of through ACEs scores, and I'm not sure if you're familiar, but oh yeah, adverse childhood events, events, yeah, yes. So those scores and and the death of a significant, like a caregiver, you know, parent, other significant person in the child's life is can create a high number in those scores impacts, you know, child's development, and so. Knowing these numbers and experiencing a significant loss can impact one's mental health as they get older. And so you're right, like creating funding to help support children after a loss or youth and teens after a loss so that they can heal. I mean, grieving is a lifelong process, as you all know. We will always mourn our person. And hopefully that will maybe look a little bit different as time goes and feel a little bit different maybe, but not quite as heavy or maybe there are ways to heal and be hopeful. Um, but we will always miss and 
and mourn our loved one, but getting support, finding people that can relate and that can help us along the way is really important. Support groups, programs, individuals. So having those opportunities is really important. Yes, yes. And hopefully we'll get a little bit more into that later on. Yeah. Like resources and tools and all of that. I wanted to share some of the statistics that have come out of the most recent research from CBEM. So there is an estimated 5.6 million children in the U.S. who will experience the death of a parent or sibling by the age of 18. And like Katie said, the model breaks down these statistics by state. And so if we look here in Minnesota, for example, they've found that one in 18 children will experience the death of a parent or sibling by age 18. This number is just barely over the national average. I'm curious, I'm going to throw this out to all of you, if anyone wants to guess which states have the highest and lowest concentrations of bereaved youth. We're like right in the middle here in Minnesota. My gut is states that have higher poverty Mm. levels. And I don't know what those states are, but I kind of get drawn to like, I feel like I'm doing a stereotype right now, but I feel like Mississippi, New Orleans, or Louisiana, I would say. (laughs) I don't know. That's that's where my... So it's West Virginia. You might need it. You're... Oh, sorry. I... No, go ahead. You were... You're not like... (laughs) Not totally off. You're not in the wrong region. Yeah. West... So West Virginia... Was found. I was going to guess somewhere in Appalachia. How come? That makes sense. Because I completely agree with Shadia. I agree that poverty plays a huge part in a lot of these social mm-hmm. statistics. And right, like they um, don't have healthcare in order to get the help and go in early when there's some, you know, and they find mm-hmm. a lump or I don't know. I just I interrupted yeah. you, Aaron. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Well, yeah. Anyways, not like my guess. Anyways, sorry. Whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know what I was going to say. I, that's what I was going to say. My guess was somewhere in Appalachia, which it is. Sarah told, already told us. So. Mhm. Mhm. And what about the lowest concentration? California. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I was going to say it's where the movie stars live. Mhm. I was thinking that too. That's funny. But I don't really know why. I mean, I rich, rich people? I don't know. Yeah, that's where I, honestly, that's where I went. It's expensive to live in California. So not that there isn't poverty, there definitely is, but maybe it's such a large population as well. So when you break it down, there's still more wealth than there is poverty. Yeah. And so geographic region is just one, you know, variable. And even within that, you know, we were unpacking the variables that could impact that, such as uh, socioeconomic status and I do know that this model does take into account race and ethnicity, and they have separate reports which break down these statistics by race and ethnicity. When we look at the cost of not taking action, um, of not addressing this issue, you see a huge impact on the community. And that is really what this report uncovers. I don't know how much of that 
you would want to get into, Katie, I will definitely post this in the show notes for our listeners to review if they are interested in. There's a lot of numbers here, but my hope is more so to talk about the impact and how we can help. Yeah, I think absolutely there can be regression and developmental regression after a significant death. I mean, I can't speak specifically. Um, I haven't researched enough about the study to be able to speak to that, but knowing in the work that I've done and you know the families that I've worked with, the importance of getting support in some fashion and for the entire family is really invaluable and important. And again, like every family and individual is unique in what that support looks like. And we can talk a little bit about that, but knowing where your support is and what would be helpful to your family at the time that feels right is important. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of knowing what to look for and, and watch for in your children or teens was also important. Yes. That's a good segue, I think, into our next topic, which is talking about the different types of grief. And like you had said, we don't want to generalize here. Each of us is having our own individual experiences, our circumstances, you know, are widely varied and we are all coping in different ways. What we're coping with in the world at the moment isn't any one thing. Some things you hear about here or elsewhere might be relevant to you and some things might not be. So I just want to put out there that take what fits and what doesn't leave, but it can be helpful to have words to describe an experience. And so that is what we are doing here and breaking down some of the different ways of describing different types or experiences of grief and loss. I'm just going to briefly run through them and then I'm going to ask Katie to kind of unpack or help us understand some of them a little bit more. So there's, I think a lot of us forget that grief doesn't have to result from death. So the first type is a non-death loss. This could be the separation of parents and losing a parent in that sense. It could be changing identities. I mean, for me, it's like just getting married. I'll say that like, I feel as though the version of me that existed up until now has died. And I am, I won't go into that because that's more so something for my own therapy, but I'm having, I have a lot of uh, grief coming up around that uh, loss or that sense of loss of myself. So a transparent, vulnerable example. The next type is secondary loss. There's anticipatory grief, ambiguous loss, cumulative loss, non-finite loss, disenfranchised grief, and then lastly, grief after a traumatic loss, otherwise referred to as traumatic grief. Katie, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about some of the different types of grief that you've seen show up in your work? Yeah, I'll speak to, because a lot of my work has been with children and teens and most recently, some young adults. And maybe I'll touch on the secondary loss first. I think we were talking a little bit about this before we started today around 
all those losses that happen after your person dies that you know we don't always think about and then we're in the middle of of you know navigating the changes after our person dies and it's one more kind of feels like gut punch of another loss such as maybe you need to move houses um, or move homes for you know, financial reasons or a parent or caregiver is switching to a different job or needs to get a job. Maybe your children or teens need to switch to a different school. Friendships often change or can change. And that's with, you know, the adults in the home might notice as well as the kids. The caregivers that might change if the kids were maybe being cared for by a grandparent and now that grandparent has died who's taking care of them or that one parent might be have been staying home with them getting them on the bus getting them off the bus and now who's getting them on the bus or who's going to be home with them after school so there are many different secondary losses that can take place and I don't know if any of you want to speak to some of those that maybe you experienced or have experienced in your journeys that you, you can relate to so for me one of the main things that sticks out is my grandparents were really present at the end of my mom's life we had moved to um, a suburb of Milwaukee originally from Chicago and my parents or my grandparents were still living in the Chicago area permanently, but they came up and stayed with us and they cared for my mom. And they were at the hospital once she was transferred into the hospital from our home. And so after my mom died, they moved back to Chicago to their home. And that was, it was just a huge, huge loss for me. You know, at the time, not something I was conscious of, but looking back on, it was a huge detriment to my mental health because of that lack of support was gone. And my dad really checked out as well. So I not only had lost my main caregiver, but I, I was really alone, really like physically <laughs> alone. Yeah. Good example, Christine. Sorry, Shadia. No, it's fine. The thing that comes to mind for me for secondary losses is additional caretakers that I had in my life. I think I've probably mentioned this before, but after my mom passed away, my dad was gone during the week working and I had nannies and a lot. <laughs> and I'm sure that was not an easy job to do. And so there was a lot of turnover per se and a few in particular. It was just devastating to know that they weren't going to be in our lives and they were choosing to not be with our family. You know, it felt like rejection over and over again. And I could go into all the things that I understand that and blah, 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 but like, let's not, let's just say for me at that time, it felt like, what were we doing wrong? Why wouldn't they want to like care for us? Like we need help right now, you know? And yeah, it was just, it felt, and I don't deal with rejection well now as an adult for that and probably additional reasons. I feel like my secondary loss is so big. It's like a loss of my, because my mom died when I was four and a half. When I think about just the beginning 
to encompass everything that followed, it would just be like, I lost my, we've talked about this before, but like sense of safety and sense of belonging in the world. I struggle with both of those immensely still. You're right. I think, you know, we all get so stuck on when you say a loss, you think of a person and there's just so much broader than that for a secondary or a loss in general, you know, and it can affect you just, just as much and have long-term effects on you as a, as a, as an adult. Yeah. And you don't necessarily realize it as a child or a youth and looking back the impact that that, that had or has played out in your life, each one of you. And as parents and caregivers of children who've experienced a death, we are doing the absolute best we can, right? And so to try very hard not to hold guilt or shame around that and to do the best that we can with what we know. And it's helpful to have these studies, to have these podcasts, to hear from all of you as adults now, to be able to share your experience and to learn and grow around what do our kids need and to talk about it. Because how many years ago did we not talk about this and share? So thank you for, for sharing what you just shared. That's really meaningful and helpful for those that are, are navigating right now, parenting and caregiving younger children and teens that have experienced, you know, the death of their mom or maybe their dad or a grandparent that, you know, or aunt or uncle or whoever that might be really significant to that child or teen. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you, Katie. Yeah. So that was, so we talked a little bit about secondary loss. What was another type of loss I think that Aaron you want? wanted to say? Something. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> see you there, Aaron. Sorry. Yeah. I just really want to share because my secondary losses don't like involve people. They do involve like tangible things. And I completely agree with like what you just said, Katie. Like, I think that they're really important to children and teenagers and they don't realize it at the time, but it, it creates long-term effects. So my mom was a single mom and I'm an only child. So immediately after her death, I was a teenager at the time. So I had to move homes almost immediately and move in with other family members. So my family structure changed overnight and I had to adapt and fit into a new structure. And also my literal physical home had to change within three days. And like I wasn't provided with space to process that or to be involved in like the moving of my physical space and my belongings. And so that's had a like very severe impact like on me and like my sense of safety and home throughout my life and kind of just how I adapt to change and those situations. So I just wanted to chime in with that because my biggest secondary loss is not related to a person. It's related to like the sense of safety and sense of home. And like, literally I had to move homes and adjust my family structure after my mom died. So yeah. Absolutely. Wow, Erin. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that as well. I've heard very similar stories to your story, what you just shared. 
from some caregivers of a few different teens. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. And and out of curiosity, what the next type of grief I was going to talk about was anticipatory. So I'm I'm curious, did you know your mom was dying or it happened very suddenly? No, mine was a really traumatic sudden loss for me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there wasn't, like you mentioned then, time to prepare. You had three days, get your stuff together and out you went in that sense of security and the safety you mentioned. And and that, yeah, so that that impact, like I said, you know, carries us for a lifetime. And as adults, we can start to wrap our brain around that a little bit and process. And as youth, it's, it, I mean, it's complicated. It's complicated as adults. So it's really complicated as youth, right? So having, and we'll talk, we can talk a little bit about this in a bit, but having adults that care about us and that are there and having those supports in place are so incredibly important. So Katie, one of the things that I have thought about over the years, as far as anticipatory grief is that, you know, I, our family did know that my mom was dying. It was acknowledged. I wouldn't say we talked about it a ton, but it was acknowledged. But I, even though I was 15, I could grasp it really um, developmentally. I really didn't. I was in, I was in total denial of her dying and impending death. And I just think it's interesting how that, how that can show up differently, especially at that kind of that critical age. So, you know, obviously younger, it, it makes sense. Older, it makes sense. It, it, I'm sorry, younger, it makes sense if, if a child doesn't get it, right, or doesn't understand. But I just think it's interesting to like how the brain can really work and protect itself <laughs> at that age where I know other people at a similar age, they knew and they, you know, they acknowledged it and understood. And like I said, I, I really was in denial. I mean, there was even a time after my mom died that I came home and I asked my dad, I came home after school and asked my, my dad how my mom was doing. And he was like, what? You know, and, and I just broke down like it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you, there's like you, I mean, that you're protecting yourself, right? And there absolutely can be denial, although you knew your mom was very sick. You knew she was, I imagine she was on hospice. They were doing nothing more to help her body get better. You were told that. And yet you're like, what do you mean she died? She's not still in her room or in her hospital bed in in our house. Exactly. I I mean, just because there is an anticipatory piece to someone dying doesn't mean it's any easier. There are different pieces and different, it's a different grief, but it doesn't mean that one is necessarily easier or better than another, right? I think that there's, of course, stigma in our society around, you know, people have their opinions and thoughts around, well, all of that. And yet it's still incredibly hard to, it it has its own, you know, pieces around watching your loved one die. 
And yeah, as a 15 year old and being in denial that your mom is dying, I think that that's fair that you, you know, had those feelings and yeah. Wow. I was just going to add to that, that brought up something for me that I remember the days before my mom was going to die and they told us, I think it was probably just a couple of days. I just remember praying and being like, just don't, you don't need to just don't let her die. And like really believing that if I prayed that, that it really wouldn't happen, you know, night after night, I was just like, nope, nope, you know, and just, and miracles do happen. I get that. I'm not saying that they don't, but this was inevitable. And I still just wanted to believe so badly to the bitter end that she wasn't going to die. You had hope. Yeah. And why wouldn't you? You know, you're like a child that only knows sort of, I grew up in a very normal middle-class family and I, I did not know loss. I did not know hard things in life. I'd never experienced anything. Yeah. Really. You don't until you do. Yeah. So you can't even fathom that something like that would ever happen. Like it felt unimaginable. Like not me. That wouldn't happen to me, you know? Right. Christine, what do you remember out of curiosity? And if you feel comfortable sharing and you don't, but have to, what do you remember at what point feeling like she's, so she's really dead? Mm, That's a really good question. So that what comes to mind for me is that I really just dug into school and studies. I think I continued to really not acknowledge the loss or grief until my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer two years after my mom died. And I became very depressed and I ended up in a, in the hospital for depression. And I think that is the point that I finally acknowledged the loss. So of course, at that point, <laughs> after two years, I knew she was not coming back. I knew she was dead, right? I, but I, I just pushed everything down. You know, I became solely focused on doing super well in school. I mean, that was, I was like perfectionist. I am going to do the best, you know, that I can. And, and that was, you know, all, that's what I did. I studied, I, I was in sports, I was in musicals and choir and that I was just going to be a super high achiever and I dealt with nothing else. Right. So yeah, I would say two years until another potential loss was, I was confronted with another potential loss and my dad didn't die at that time, but yeah, it, it knocked me to my knees. And that is, you know, part of our healing is acknowledging that our person died. So I was curious. It's like, you know, one of our, one of the steps or I don't know, there is such a thing. I'm glad you bring that up because I was going to say, I think that ties into secondary loss and a part of grief being a process. Mm-hmm. that is essentially never ending it's like continually coming to that realization that this person is gone in the context of life in the present that's how it's been feeling for me especially as someone who lost my mom so young it's like 
you know, a child's condition from a young age, the ABCs, you know, math, all these things. Like I was conditioned, your mom died of cancer. Here's the narrative. Here's the story. I didn't put it together emotionally and, and cognitively until, you know, my 20s, I feel like. And now I'm really doing the healing work around it. And I'm constantly coming to terms with the realization that my mom is dead, even though it's something I've known almost my whole life. I think there's the piece of your understanding the meaning of that, the meaning of it when you're four and the meaning of it when you're 27 is different. Right. right? Totally. You experience that loss at different developmental stages throughout your life. And that is why we don't ever get over our loss or our losses. So that makes a lot of sense, Sarah. Thank you. It's validating. And even with like Girls Rise Up, like being around all these girls who've lost their moms, I can really compartmentalize my loss to them in a way that it's not healthy, where I'm like, oh my, oh, I feel so bad for you lost your mom. And I'm like, wait, I lost my mom. I mean, I do have more empathy, but I also forget that's me. Like that was me as well. Like I just can, and it's to protect myself. I know that. I don't know if that's a normal thing, Katie. Oh my gosh, Shadia. I will tell you that's why I don't do that work right now. It is <laughs> too, I will look at a child who's four and a half and just for a moment, imagine that their parent is dying and I am sent into a spiral. Mm-hmm. I just, I that can't. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's so good that you know that of where you're at right now with that too. Because I, I really relate with, excuse me, I really relate to that, Chad. And, you know, I, I was feeling really emotional this morning. And I think part of it had to do with that is I, I mentioned I was looking at pictures of the girls that we serve um, with their moms. And I had the crossover, right? I was, it's like, I was looking at those pictures and it was, it was also me I was looking at, right? I mean, it, it became both and I just lost it. (laughs) I've kind of lost it off and on all morning. And I, but I think I just completely relate with the compartmentalizing because I think we have to, in order to show up in the way that we do really. I absolutely think it's that, you know, taking care of yourself in that moment, Shadia, like that protective factor, like you talked about, and then knowing when to take care of yourself too. And I don't really like to do that. (laughs) Right. And then when we don't do that, then what happens? Then we fall into a very dark hole and can't get out. Yes, or it comes out sideways is how I say it. Or it comes out when you don't want it to or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you, just like you said, sometimes when I'm working with the girls, I go back to that place and I think this. So you could set that aside for a moment and then I'm going to come back to that and kind of think about that. Like, what does that mean? And kind of like, how can I process this or take care of myself in that? Which is a lot of work, right? It is a lot of work, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, I feel like 
it's so important to take care of yourself and, and heal yourself in order to help others. And then it also can just, it can feel draining if you are just constantly giving and feeding into other people's grief, but haven't dealt with your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Katie, was there any other type of grief you just want me to like speak to if they want more information on? I mean, I I think for kids anyway, I would say we probably touched on some, I mean, maybe the traumatic loss, but that's really heavy. And that's like a specialized, you know, that's specialized grief. Right, right. And that would, you know, really re- require some individualized therapy and support mm-hmm. for their, they might be seeing some real significant behavioral challenges. And so it was a real traumatic loss. And that again is an individual, mm-hmm. how the person died, if the child was present when the person died, if the child I mean, I'm just even thinking of a, a story where they were on vacation and the dad was riding his bike back from the little lodge and fell off his bike and hit his head and they didn't find him till the next morning. They didn't realize that you know, he just never came, got back to their little cabin and they were in another country. And now the kids have one little girl has sleeping problems and she's really struggling with sleep because dad Mm -hmm. died and and she knows he died in the middle of the night. And so like to her, this is really feels very traumatic. So it's not anything what maybe you or I might think is traumatic, but for her, you know, she's having some real trauma around dad dying in the middle of the night and sleep. And, and so working through some of So I just think the trauma and grief maybe is very specific to helping uh, getting some individualized support. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, Erin. Yeah, in the chat, Erin's asking about how this could be categorized if it's possibly tied to a PTSD diagnosis. It could be. PTSD has to happen like for a significant period of time. Like you have to have symptoms for a certain period of time in the DSM. Yeah, I'm super curious on this. And you kind of explained it like it's very individualized, but this seems like a really intense category. And I'm kind of even wondering how on earth is this even like categorized? Because it seems that there are so many elements that could be traumatic about each individual loss. So it's like, how do you even know if a child has experienced traumatic loss? What about that loss? has to be there, what elements have to be present in order for it to be classified or whatever as a traumatic loss? It would have to be, I mean, so this would be in my non-formalized training. I mean, I'm in school, but I'm not there yet. It would have to be significantly impacting their everyday life, I would imagine. And for a certain period of time and they would need to go be evaluated by someone who's got some specialized training in that. But let's just say a parent came to me and said, you know, they experienced this death and, but I mean, it would be very situational, right? Like mom was murdered in the house and, you know, we've got these kind of situations, this situation happening and they would need to be formally 
evaluated? It's good, good questions, Erin. And I think everything that we're talking about, about traumatic loss, I just feel it ties into like what tools are out there to even like know if it's been a traumatic loss. And if you suspect it is, if there's a lot of like issues coming up for this specific child, who do you even turn to? Where do you go to get a, you know, what tools are out there? Because that's, this is hard stuff and it can be really scary stuff. I think that's where we talk about what do we do when we're seeing behaviors that aren't typical for your child and where do we go and who do we turn to for some additional support? What are the resources that are in our community when we feel like our children, our teens are really struggling? Maybe we're seeing some pretty significant regression. They're spending, you know, they're teenagers, but they're spending even more time in their room and closing off from friends that they used to hang out with. They're not wanting to go to soccer practice anymore. They've quit the team. They were really excited to try out for the spring musical and they've decided they're not going to do that. They were potty trained and they have completely regressed on their potty training and we can't get them back into it. And it's been four months. Behaviors that maybe they're crying every day and throwing temper tantrums. Maybe it's the school's now noticing behaviors. They're not get they're truant from school. There's like significant behaviors the parent might be noticing that like, this is not them. I know we've had a really significant death and we need some additional support. And then that is when we look at what's available in our community and where can we go. And that might mean going to your, your pediatrician and asking who are some mental health resources they might recommend. Um, it might be reaching out to Brighter Days Family Grief Center. Um, they have multiple resources for children and families from mental health care providers, grief support groups. They are a wealth of information and have lots of resources. And if are they specific to, I'm sorry, Katie, are, is Brighter Day specific to Minnesota? Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. So, yeah, so that would be a local resource. Yes. That's awesome though. So Brighter Days Grief Center is one. So Brighter Days Family Grief Center. Family Grief Center. Yeah. If families are just wanting some resources on just how to help support their children after a death, or wanting some resources for their children, like children's resources, um, worksheets, what types of books are real children's books um, that are really good that are out there, or for teens, or even some young adults. There's young adult podcasts and, and different resources for that age group, which is also a forgotten age group in our communities. The Dougie Center is, I would recommend, and they're another grief center out in Washington. So that is Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot org. They have really great resources on their website. And then one other organization I would recommend that is national would be the National Alliance for Children's Grief. So that's N-A-C-G. And their website is childrengrieve.org. So they have multiple resources on their website. So I think that, you know, between the Dougie Center, the National Alliance for Children's Grief, 
and locally, Brighter Days Family Grief Center. Those are some good places to start for different resources for our families that parents and caregivers that are um, helping support children and teens and young adults that are grieving. And then in addition, if you're really, you know, struggling and seeing some behaviors in your children that are not typical for them and you know them best as parents and caregivers, I would, you know, start with your your primary care providers or even Brighter Days Family Grief Center has some um, really, that's local, has some really good connections with some mental health providers in our community that can get some um, one-on-one individual support. Thank you so much, Katie. I will be sure to put all of this in our show notes as well so that our listeners, you know, if you're driving, not able to write this down, you can access this information at any time. This is incredible that there are organizations out there to support grieving youth and their families. I just want to kind of review the topics we talked about today. We we covered a lot and yet there's so much more that could be talked about, but with the limited time we have left, I wanted to make sure that we had time to recap. So we started with research and statistics about children and grief, talking about the prevalence of it. It's an area that requires more research and understanding so as to better provide and meet the needs of that population. We talked about different types of grief with the disclaimer that everyone's experience is unique and individual. However, there are different ways to understand and label various grief experiences. We only really dove into a few of them. And so I encourage you to, again, check out the show notes and explore whatever types pique your interest. Lastly, we shared some tools and resources for accessing support, whether you are a parent or caregiver trying to support a grieving youth or you know someone who is As always, we appreciate you sharing this podcast and our resources with anyone you think would be interested. Can I add one more um, resource in our community that certainly I um, do not want to miss, but She Climbs Mountains and Girls Rise Up, of course, is a fantastic organization for women and girls that have experienced the death of a mother. And we would not be here today without that organization. So they offer some amazing programs for for girls ages, is it eight, Christine and Shadia? Yeah, eight, eight to 18. Um, and then for women who have experienced the loss of their mothers. So please use that resource as well in our community. That is why we are all here. (laughs) So thank you, Christine, for creating that. I just really want to like 30 seconds to talk about like these resources being accessible for people who are financially struggling or live in rural areas. That was something that my family specifically like struggled with. So I just, I don't know. 
reminding people that a lot of these organizations operate under a nonprofit status. And so a lot of their groups are free and we're seeing a lot of these groups meeting over the internet, over Zoom, and it's more accessible for people who can't drive somewhere. Thank you, Erin. That is so important. As far as for parents and caregivers who are, you know, actively raising and caregiving children, young children and teens, and even, you know, those young adults in their homes that have experienced the death of a significant person, I think we often, you know, want to fix it for our kids. And it's so hard to see our children hurting. And at the same time, it is, you know, and we're also grieving ourselves, right? It is incredibly important. The most important thing is that our kids know that we are there. They have caring adults that are with them, walking alongside them, that we cannot fix it for them. We can't take it away but we can love on them. We can support them. We can provide resources. We can acknowledge that this is hard and that we will be okay. There are other kids and teens that have experienced a loss as well. That doesn't take away from the hard feelings that we're having and the sadness that we're experiencing. And yet we can find different support groups in our community um, with others and we can find help and we aren't alone. And so that's what kids really need. They need consistency as much as we can. And we also know that there are going to be changes. They need honesty in a developmentally appropriate way. So having truthful information in a safe manner And that might mean around how that person died. And if parents and caregivers need help around how to explain that, because there are certain deaths that can be really complicated, but often kids are smarter than what we realize and they might know more than we think they do. And so it is important that they have truthful, honest information in a safe and developmentally appropriate way. And somebody who What's coming to mind for me is a therapist, for example, as a resource to help communicate in a in a developmentally appropriate way. Is are there any other resources you can think of? Or yeah, you might be able to use a school professional. You might find some of those resources on how to talk to children online through you know the Dougie Center, through the National Alliance for Children's Grief that, you know, we will provide in this podcast, um, those resources and some local resources that might be able to help you in explaining a loss or a death in a way that is safe and truthful and age appropriate. There are ways to do that, even with difficult deaths and complicated, maybe even traumatic deaths. But that is, it is important for children to have that information and to really just have adults that care about them and that support. So if they don't have truthful information, they will eventually find out that information at some age. 
And when they do, they will re-grieve that loss all over again. Um, and that um, will likely be very difficult and, and, and there will be some maybe lack of trust and anger. And so but I would recommend working with someone that can help support a professional or someone that can offer some support. Yeah. What I'm hearing is a lot of validation and compassion and patience and letting go of the expectation to fix and maybe refocusing that energy on the quality of the relationship and just being as present and supportive as possible with the experience that the child is having. And I say all of that as though it's so easy. And I know it's very, I imagine, very, very hard. Absolutely. And I think your kids will remember who told them or where they were, what they were wearing, the feelings that that created. Um, And so I can share with you that no one's perfect and we all get do-overs. So if we said something and we're like, oh, I should not have said it that way. We always get to go back and say, remember when I said this, I was thinking about that. And I probably should have not said it that way, or I made a mistake and I want to change what I said. And, you know, just because we're adults, we don't always get it right either, you know? So Or if kids ask a question and we're not quite ready to answer that question around, you know, this, we can say, let me get back to you. There's Coda. (laughs) That's good. Ask a question. You don't have to answer. We don't have to answer. No. And we can say, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked me. We can show emotion with our kids. That's okay. And actually we're role modeling which is also really good and saying, I feel really sad today that mommy died. I'm just remembering when, you know, she used to make those, you know, cupcakes and I would eat all of her frosting and she'd get mad at me. Or I just remember when she would plant the tulips and they would be coming up this time of year or, um, you know, I'm having a hard day today or, I just remember this really funny story and to share some of those because some of your memories will be their memories Um, and to role model some of that. And that's okay. And also to know that your kids might be protecting you and not want to talk about that person that died with you. And you might think, oh, that's, it's so weird. Like they don't look like they're grieving. They never talk about them. They don't cry. They don't do any of this. And that's also why it's important that they have other people outside of the home and other resources to help support them because what they're doing is protecting you as the caregiver or the other caregiver in the home. They may want to protect you um, or maybe they do want to talk to you. So every relationship is different, but just know that if they're not talking to you, it, it very likely could be because they are protecting. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Katie. It's a hard one to wrap up all of this. There's, there's so much here. Thank you so much for listening this week, everyone. And thank you to our incredible guest, Katie, and to my amazing co-host. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. 
We release new content every other Tuesday. In our next episode, we'll be exploring forgiveness. You can listen wherever you stream your podcasts, and you can also find us online at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pieces of You Podcast. If you like our pod, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We would so appreciate it. Take care of yourselves and remember, if we work together, we can make the broken better. for you.